Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Andre, being joined by Ryan. Ryan, you know what restaurant I really want to try out someday soon? Denny's? No, I've been to Denny's numerous times, but I want to try out Le Diplomat. Because I've been seeing it in the news quite ah. a bit. Uh, apparently, Sonia Sotomayor was cited there. Actually, she wasn't. That was fake news, but... Nancy Pelosi, Amy Klobuchar, some other people were cited there. I feel like I keep hearing about it. If all of these bigwigs are going in there, why can't I go there as well? Well, Andre, you can certainly go there. I've actually been there since living in D.C. Uh, I do have some friends that live fairly close by. And so I've been there for a nice afternoon glass of wine. They've got some good food. It's also it is very sceny. Um, there are, you know, you have all of D.C.'s elite that go in and out of you know that restaurant and some others in Georgetown and elsewhere. So. Once you're in DC, we'll go to Le Dip. How, how expensive is it? Oh, you know, once you're employed, Andre, you'll be able to, you'll, you'll have a nice meal there. Oh, I'm sure men and women of the people certainly go and eat there. <laughs> it's not too bad. Um, but anyway, um, how are you doing, Andre? I'm doing good, Ryan. I'm doing good. I have job interviews coming up this week, but I'm still on the market. So if your guys are listening, still here. Uh, I'm I'm waiting for the day where Andre does not have to do these shameless plugs on the podcast to be, get employed, but soon enough, I have faith that you will be. Yeah, faith misplaced may have been. But anyway, we have a great episode today with Javed Ali, the former senior director of counterterrorism of the National Security Council between around 2017-2019. Uh, Javed was actually one of our closest mentors for those of our new listeners. Javed really helped us get this podcast off the ground in those initial weeks and months. Uh, certainly the person we owe much of the success of the podcast to, uh, but he's had a great, crazy career in counterterrorism, and we talked a bit about the state of terrorism, the state of counterterrorism, domestic terrorism, and foreign terrorism, as it is today in 2022. Sort of a great overarching episode for the beginning of the year. I mean, given what's happened in the past year, I thought it was such a a nice way to kind of shepherd in 2022 to just understand what is essentially occurring in the world of counterterrorism, both from the international terrorism perspective, which is what I think prior to January 6th, what most people thought about. But since then, domestic terrorism has been really the focal point of, I guess, really American news and really the, the consciousness of this country. Yeah, absolutely. And we do spend a bit of time talking about sort of far right extremism. But do pay attention, because I do bring up the point that many sort of on the right wing have made when talking about far-right extremism is that they sometimes have referred to Black Lives Matter riots, for example, the protests that then turned into riots uh, as sort of domestic terrorism as well. And I asked Job to sort of talk a bit about that to elucidate. Is that actually domestic terrorism? Is it not terrorism? Why do we... You know, why do we or do we not consider it as so? Yeah, I mean, it's really important as we kind of move forward in, in the United States and in other countries around the world that are dealing with domestic terror issues to one, be able to define in a concrete way what it really is. And two, to have legislation and regulation to ensure that you impose costs for those who engage in terrorist acts. Especially as this domestic terrorism issue has been so politicized because it is falling somewhere on that ideological wing. For sure. I mean, it's certainly in the United States, it, it's very clear that the, the most present threat right now is coming from the right wing. Of course, you know, 
there are threats from other sides of the spectrum. Um, but right now, I think it's, it's, it's undisputed. We had the weather underground, for yeah. example. We had the weather underground in the 60s, which was left wing, which was planting some bombs in different places. So, I mean, this does exist, but right now, it's the far right, which we're concerned exactly. about. And so we, so we do have a great conversation with Javid about both DT and IT issues, kind of broader perspective for the Biden administration as they're be, soon enough will be rolling out their national security strategy, which will outline for them. They, of course, had um, a preliminary kind of counterterrorism strategy that they, they had out over the summer. And so I'm looking forward to what they'll actually build upon with their national security strategy when that comes out. Absolutely. For now, uh, here's our episode with Javed. Javid, thank you so much for joining us today. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, Ryan, uh, Andre, great to uh, talk to you guys. Happy New Year and um, look forward to the conversation this afternoon. So Javed, uh, we've seen, we've had quite a year in 2021. We saw the withdrawal from Afghanistan. We just uh, commemorated the one year anniversary of the January 6th the insurrection. Uh as a former senior director of counterterrorism, you focused on foreign terrorism, but lately you've been doing a lot of work writing on domestic terrorism. How big are these two challenges, foreign terrorism, domestic terrorism? What's the bigger challenge for the United States right now? Thanks, Andre. It's a really good question, considering where we are as a country 20 years after 9-11. And uh, as someone in the late 90s, um, before I came to government, and then when I came into government uh, in the post 9-11 world, I, I mean, almost the overwhelming focus of the U.S. government counterterrorism enterprise uh, was on international terrorism, and rightly so. I mean, the Al-Qaeda threat was so significant. The country had just been attacked horrifically um, in a way that hadn't happened since uh, World War II with Pearl Harbor. Obviously, that wasn't a terrorism attack, but just the scale and the scope and the lethality of it. And, and the government ramped up to meet that international terrorism threat. Um, and with some success, but some setbacks and failures, and you've had lots of other podcasts that have talked about things that went well and things that didn't go well over those 20 years from an international terrorism perspective. Um, but I would argue at the same time, the government was very focused on uh, international terrorism, and that what was drawing is all the attention and the resources and the capabilities, um, or you know, most of them, not 100%, but uh, that by the late 2000s, there started to be the sort of a resurgence of a far-right extremist movement here in the United States. And it was at first very slow and gradual, and it wasn't resulting in lethal attacks probably for four or five years after the emergence of, or the resurgence of, again, this movement that had been dormant for, for quite some period of time after the, the late 80s and into the, the mid-90s when it was also you know pretty high level here in the United States. A lot of people don't remember that time period. Um, but the, the focus even then, as ISIS emerged in the mid-2010s, um, we we're lots of tensions with Iran and its proxies uh, in the Middle East and uh, Al Qaeda and its affiliates were still an issue. That there was still this inordinate amount of tension on counterterrorism, and I say that even in the the last few years of my government service, we were very focused on international terrorism, with an awareness though that this domestic terrorism landscape was was shifting under our feet. And then we had violent attacks that were happening with people 
motivated or inspired by some of these far right uh, ideas or beliefs, whether it was white supremacy or you know Nazism, um, anti-government views. Uh, because in, even when I use this term far right, it's not monolithic. There's no one single group. There's no one single ideological belief. Um, there are sort of discrete kind of elements to it, uh, and it's very kind of diffuse and fragmented. But as I was leaving government in 2018, um, it was clear that far-right extremism was was definitely trending upwards uh, through lots of different measures. And as I was leaving, I think one of the really interesting parts of that was that all these different, or some of the different pieces in that counterterrorism world in which I served in all these different roles that you guys described, were starting to focus more attention on domestic extremism and the far-right uh, aspect of it. So I thought in a way, even though I was leaving to, to start teaching at Michigan, that the enterprise again, which was for so long you know, hyper-focused on the international terrorism side was starting to give more attention and, and put more resources against the, the domestic terrorism one. And I think that balance is still, or, or that change is still uh, occurring. It's probably never gonna be 50%. It, you know, and if you think of kind of the, the, the weighting of, of of, of things from a like these two equally weighted scales, but it's definitely not as skewed as it was in that first decade plus after 9-11. And I think one of the really interesting questions will be going forward with, given what the domestic extremism landscape looks like now a year after January 6th, will those scales continue to tilt more uh, towards the domestic extremism um, issue both in terms of threat and again, resources and capabilities and attention, or will they um, tip back or stay, you know, uh, with a higher weight on the international terrorism side? And it's it's hard to predict it. I personally think that we're we're nowhere out of the woods when it comes to domestic extremism and far right extremism here. I think we're going to be dealing with this for for um, if not years, decades. I wrote a fairly provocative opinion piece about a year ago saying that we're already in a fifth wave of, of, of extremism, kind of jumping off a, another political scientist who'd come up with this four waves of extremism model uh, that was published in 2000. And if you agree with that political scientist's um, wave theory of terrorism, that each of the waves that he had described uh, from the 1880s to the year 2000 lasted 20 to 40 years. So if my analysis is right, and I could be totally wrong, but if you buy into it, um, that the this current wave we're in now, again, this heightened far-right uh, threat in the U.S., it's probably not even at its high point. And I don't think January 6th was the culmination of it. So I think we're, we're going to be in this for a while. At least for me, one of the most kind of interesting aspects of this is th this balance because domestic terrorism and international terrorism are quite different as far as how we approach them. Resources, the money that goes into it, and really the legality of it all. Of course, you know, we, we talked about some of that stuff with Barbara McQuaid in the early days of the podcast, which was great. But Javed, from your perspective, as someone who's kind of worked on the DT and the IT side in your career, is there a way in which we can kind of balance it more from a resources side? Is it even possible to approach domestic terrorism in a similar manner as which we did so with international terrorism? I mean, I think that's going to be really hard because the tools, the authorities, the capabilities to combat international terrorism 
almost none of those can be used here inside the United States. So when you think of at least when it comes to the federal government's role, um, the lead agency for terrorism in the U.S. is the FBI. And even if that is, um, you know, the FBI that has elevated domestic terrorism to a, a, a priority or a high priority within the organization, um, it's not as if all 40,000 employees of the FBI, agents, analysts, other staff are focused on just domestic terrorism. I mean, there's lots of other national security priorities the FBI has to has to wrestle with. So even for the FBI as the lead agency, it's not an all or nothing um, sort of approach, right? There's They have definitely scaled up. And again, I started to see that scaling up as I was leaving. But even still, with whatever that additional level of effort is for the FBI, it still has to be balanced with other counterterrorism priorities and other national security priorities. So, so if you were to compare that to the military, right, which has done the lion's share and the bulk of the, uh, you know, the, the counterterrorism effort overseas for 20 years, um, obviously the military has more money, more people, more resources, uh, more capability. So you're never going to have that kind of equal balance in the U.S. And again, you can't use the military domestically to to go after American citizens here, nor would we ever want a scenario like that. So I think from that aspect, there's always going to be an imbalance, but it's, a, again, a question of just policy attention and prioritization. That's where I think domestic terrorism now may be eclipsing the international terrorism one in terms of the level of focus the White House is putting on it. And that one really interesting way to measure that is in June of this year, um, the White House put out its uh, well, put out a first ever national strategy on domestic terrorism. No White House had done that. No, I mean, in the years I served in government, no administration had done that. We were thinking about how to tackle this in the Trump White House, uh, and certainly in the aftermath of Charlottesville, but we also knew that we weren't going to be able to get a pure domestic terrorism strategy out the door, um, but we wanted to address it in the national counterterrorism strategy. So the Biden administration has taken a very different approach. They didn't wait for a national security strategy to come out first, which is generally what administrations do in their first year. They also didn't try to put a national counterterrorism strategy out in that first year, like we tried to do in the Trump uh, White House. And that strategy actually came out even after I left. So it took almost a year and a half for that to come out. So they got that document out first and they got it out within about six months, which is really quick. And um, that document lays out sort of this new approach that the Biden administration is taking on domestic terrorism. And it's clear that there are more, there's more effort and energy and attention on this than any other administration. I would argue not even in, in the post 9-11 era, but pre 9-11 era. Um, and it's still too early to say how that will uh, sort of address this threat that I've described as this fifth wave. But at least, again, we have a new blueprint, we have a new framework, and there's more there's more attention on it. So when it comes to domestic terrorism, I feel like a lot of it, uh, when we talk about it, has become almost politicized to an extent, very politicized, especially when we talk about right wing extremism. Uh, for example, we've seen some right wing commentators, uh, you know, dispute, you know, the arrests of some of the insurrectionists, for example, the January 6th, the riots. And uh, some on the right wing have in turn called, for example, when the Black Lives Matters protests were happening uh, last year in 2020, uh, 
that resulted in some riots, some chaos. And they said, okay, like, aren't those people terrorists as well? So what's your take on that? What's your response to that? Yeah, I mean, this is what they're in the aftermath of 9-11. There was unity in the country on the notion of we have to um, sort of learn the mistakes uh, of the pre-9-11 era to make sure this doesn't happen again and then improve our uh, defenses to kind of harden the country from these external attacks, but also now go on the offense against jihadist groups like uh, Al-Qaeda and then ISIS. There was no dispute about that, right? There was, and that's why there was so much reform that happened after 9-11 to, to enable that kind of um, effort. On the domestic terrorism side, it's much more politicized and it's it's caught up in a different kind of conversation. And instead of having unity about the what happened uh, even in the aftermath of January 6th, if anything, we've just we're more polarized now than we were a year ago. And this has played out into the conversation about how do you how do you address extremism here and who's who's potentially a terrorist and who's not. One of the really interesting things about January 6th is um, 725 people arrested or charged. And that number seems to just grow every week. And Director Ray of the FBI said, even though this is the largest single criminal investigation in the history of the FBI, it's not over, right? There's still other people who potentially are facing charges. So the numbers may continue to, to get higher for a while. But even with the 725 people charged, no, of those people who are facing different crimes, uh, felonies, most most in the misdemeanor category, but about uh, 15 to 20% um, facing more serious felony charges. Not a single of the, single to date, none of those charges include the word terrorism in it, even though, uh, at least rhetorically or analytically, January 6th is being described as an act of domestic terrorism or as an indicator of, you know, this, this, domestic terrorism environment. And that is the the disconnect between that is because we have an existing federal definition of domestic terrorism under the Patriot Act uh, in, from 2001. Uh, for any of your listeners who want to go look it up, it's 18 USC 2331 in the US code. Um, but there is no crime of domestic terrorism. So right now, prosecutors, even the ones investigating all the defendants for January 6th, haven't brought a terrorism charge forward because there's no crime of terrorism or not even one that fits under, there's a, a separate um, uh, legal provision known as the Terrorism Enhancement Act where like, there's 57 different crimes that a prosecutor could bring forward to actually use the terrorism charge. And even that hasn't been used. Um, so it's a really interesting aspect of the of just the legal framework for uh, domestic terrorism here, and there's there's no formally designated domestic terrorism groups the way there are formally designated terrorist groups on the overseas front, um, and that's again that's another gap in the the legal framework that exists. So you can't charge someone for material support to terrorism for being in the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers or the Three Percenters or Antifa or any other um, group that someone may put a, a terrorism label on. So we, we just got holes in our legal framework here that um, doesn't mean that prosecutors can't charge people for crimes. They can, but they can't charge them for terrorism-related crimes because of the complexities I just described. No list of terrorist organizations, no um, crime of uh, domestic 
terrorism. And I think that colors how people view this issue on both the left and the right. I think likewise for the um, you know, the the activity you described, Andre, you know, the sort of the riots and the destruction of property and the vandalism that were being perpetrated in the summer of 2020. Uh, I think people were arrested for those, but again, no one's facing any terrorism-specific crimes. So um, this is just something we're going to have to figure out how to how to manage through in the U.S. unless Congress changes the law. And right now, again, because of the political polarization, that seems highly unlikely. I mean, I certainly agree with that. I know that um, the Democrat Party has attempted to you know, put forth some legislation, but of course they've gotten pushback. And so while legislation does not seem to be realistic anytime soon, at least for me, one of the other gaps that I see is a, 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 a lapse in coordination, particularly from federal, state, local. So that kind of um, trifecta. Um, and we, we've seen this in a lot of different types of CT issues from international terrorism. But when you look at domestic terrorism, I think that the local authorities have the best grasp on what's happening in their communities as far as organization and mobilization of individuals. And so are we doing enough, the federal government being the we, doing enough to coordinate properly with our state and local counterparts? And what can be done in order to make that a more robust sense of cooperation coordination yeah that's another kind of probably missing part of of the the enterprise in the u.s and and again in the post 9-11 world and i was in that world for for such a long time when it came to that level of uh information sharing and coordination it was all about the overseas threats or the overseas threats directed towards the united states it, um it wasn't about pure domestic terrorism per se, per se, the way we would all probably think about it. And so that was another, I think that's been another gap that's been exposed as a result of January 6th and, and some other incidents. And the domestic, going back to the administration's domestic terrorism strategy, they call that out. There's a, there's the document has four sort of strategic pillars and I forget which pillar it is. It might be the third or the fourth one, but there's one on information sharing. And so in the document, they acknowledge that um, there has to be sort of better systems put in place and more um, kind of coordination. But one of the challenges too, going back to the legal issue is we're not talking about foreign directed threats into the United States anymore. We're talking about American citizens uh, who may be up until the point of crossing the line into criminality, that activity may be protected by the constitution, whether under the first amendment, um, second amendment, um, you know, Fourth Amendment. So there are uh, all these legal issues that make it so much more complicated to collect information, to share it, um, to distribute it when it comes to pure domestic extremism here that you were not as constrained on on the international terrorism side. And this is one of the trade-offs that that people need to think about. If, if we want a higher level of security, um, uh, when it comes to domestic extremism perpetrated by you know our uh, fellow Americans, well, there's going to be a trade-off from a privacy and a civil liberties standpoint. And at what point, you know, where does where does that line now move? And in the past, um, certainly in the 1960s uh, and 1970s, when when the FBI was was pretty aggressive about going after um, 
sort of political protesters and people um, thought to be sort of with an anti-U.S. agenda, you know, all Americans, uh, you know, there were things done that would make people cringe now, right? So um, what I find really interesting, again, in this sort of policy debate about potentially doing more in different aspects of domestic terrorism, and certainly when it comes to information sharing, um, some of the loudest critics of having a more robust approach are privacy and civil liberties groups, because they'll point to this era from 50, 60 years ago and say, because of those excesses that were committed then, that we can't arm the FBI or DHS or law enforcement with these new tools and capabilities, because they'll just be abused. So I think there needs to be so much more done to have kind of rational discussions about what can work and what can't work. But but the answers can't be, we're not going to do anything because we're just dug into our respective um, kind of uh, positions because the threat is is so much higher now than it was even 10 years ago. So that I think would be the wrong answer, just to status quo. I, I do think there needs to be a lot more nuanced discussions um, to, you know, accommodate some of these different perspectives, but status quo seems to be the wrong choice when it, in face, in facing, you know, the threat the way it is right now. So now sort of moving on into international terrorism, we still have armed groups abroad that are trying to certainly attack the U.S. homeland here and U.S. interests, you know, around the world. Uh, We, you know, we withdrew from the Middle East, uh, sorry, from Afghanistan. We've had a lot of episodes that have focused on Afghanistan, uh, but the administration has certainly taken the point of view uh, that the sort of the Islamic extremist terrorist threat is sort of spread out throughout the world, Northern Africa, the rest of Africa, the Middle East, even Asia. Uh, How do we not lose sight of international terrorism? And what does this sort of post-Afghanistan counterterrorism landscape look like when it comes to, you know, these threats that we face for over 20 to 30 years. Well, I think one of the lessons of 9-11 is that if you ignore jihadist groups that have openly declared war on the United States, you do that at your peril, right? They will attack you if given the time and the space and uh, the ability to develop um, you know, plots and, and capabilities. And that's exactly what Al-Qaeda did. And I teach classes on this now. Osama bin Laden in the late 1990s was not hiding his intentions about what he wanted to do. Yes, we didn't know the tactical and operational aspects of 9-11 or the successful attacks before that, the embassy bombings in 98, the coal attack. But in terms of his strategic intention, he couldn't have been more clear for two or three years. He was a he had committed his organization to, to war against the United States, and he was carrying it out. Um, so that is why I think the U.S. approach after 9-11, you know, with a lot of international partners, was was so uh, aggressive because we knew the stakes were were so high. Here we are, 20 years later. We've pulled out of Afghanistan. We've got a very small presence left in places like Iraq and Syria, and even smaller in different countries around the world. That's probably what counterterrorism is going to look like overseas for the United States for some period of time. We're not. I don't think we're we're completely abandoning the international terrorism um, sort of side of the counterterrorism portfolio. I think we would be doing that. We would just be cutting off our nose to spite our face, again, given the lessons of the pre-9-11 world. But at the same time, we're not going to be as deeply invested in these um, countries and these conflicts as we were before. So I think you've had um, 
some previous uh, or recent podcasts about managing risk and kind of reallocating burdens. And I think that's what the the Biden administration is trying to signal is that, yes, we're not going to be doing as much. Doesn't mean we're walking away from from these threats completely, but it's now time for for other um, either partners to to step up and and meet the threats that are in their own backyards and perhaps with uh, without as much U.S. support as in the past. And we'll see how that plays out in different parts of the world. Again, it may increase the threat in the long term, but at least right now, the Biden administration is, is doesn't seem to have the appetite for those. Um, and then um, I think one of the interesting questions coming out of Afghanistan is, and I, I think we've talked about this before, uh, is because of the situation on the ground, the Taliban's in control, They one would assume they don't want to lose power now that they've regained it. Uh, and part of staying in power would mean preventing that country from being a launch pad for external operations uh, against the West or the United States homeland. And so it's in the Taliban's best interest to, to stop that from happening because they saw what happened to them post 9-11. The Taliban wasn't involved directly in 9-11, but the Bush administration held them responsible for, um, for enabling Al-Qaeda. So I think they know what the stakes are. Now the, the question is, will the U.S., with not at least a combat presence on the ground, um, would we ever entertain a counterterrorism relationship with the Taliban? And if so, what would that look like? Um, and again, I don't have the answers to that because I'm not in government, but I would like to think there are people contemplating that or at least you know trying to to put something like that in motion. But um, they are now, in a way, sort of guarantors of international security because they must realize that if their country becomes a, a safe haven again, um, at least for the you know, the international aspect of jihadist uh, extremism that's in the region, then they're going to pay a very heavy price for that. So it's going to be fascinating to see how that plays out. So Javed, uh, you are now Professor Ali. And, you know, I imagine that in your classes with Michigan students, they, they may ask you, of course, now we have this domestic terrorism threat that does seem at least now and more than in the past, a higher threat uh, to the United States. And so what can we do? just as normal American citizens to ensure that this doesn't become a threat of the scale of a January 6th again, or maybe even a, a 9-11 type event. What uh, can the American people do aside from government to kind of decrease the risk that we're seeing? Yeah, good question. Right. And first of all, uh, I, you know, I've been teaching for four years. You guys um, saw me in the early stage of my teaching career. And, but the one thing that has been constant, I don't allow anyone to call me professor. Uh, so uh, still trying to get people to call me by my first name. Um, but still, uh, you know, I, I have tried to, um, you know, heighten awareness about these topics through the classes I teach. Obviously, I'm you know just one person. Um, but I do think there's a role for education. And I do think there's a, a, a role for civic dialogue on these topics and, and making people aware that there are threats out there, whether they're at home, whether they're abroad, and and um, that uh, we need to be clear-eyed about that, but not, also not overreact, right? And that's kind of another one of these lessons after 9-11 is that um, even in the aftermath of these terrible events, the, you know, what you shouldn't do is overreact um, because that just potentially exacerbates an already existing problem um, and can breed, you know, further kind of radicalization and, and resentment down the road with, you know, whomever 
these communities that are affected. Um, so education to me is important. And I think one of the, the more fascinating aspects of domestic extremism here is that, again, there's no one single factor that is driving it or fueling it, but a factor that is having an impact is this whole notion of misinformation and disinformation and conspiracy theories that people latch onto that then can drive ideologically motivated violence. So that's another sort of issue that really needs to be tackled. Um, you know, is it a public health issue? Is it a um, information management issue? Is it an education issue? Like where do all these things tie together and who's um, overseeing kind of different programs and what's the role of the federal government versus state and local government and private sector and kind of the nonprofit world. So it's a, it's a much more complex set of issues when it comes to domestic extremism here, because there's no one single factor that's, that's fueling this, that there are several factors all combining at once and no one single, either part of the government or this larger kind of ecosystem that I talked about has all the answers. So I think we're just going to have to come together uh, as a society and, and do things in a way that we, we haven't before, but that also takes strong leadership. And again, the Biden administration, I think, is trying to promote that um, through the strategy saying that, look, this isn't just a federal government solution. It's a whole of society solution. There are all these different pieces that need to be addressed. So hopefully that will bear some fruit coming down the road. Well, Javed, thanks for joining us today. You gave us a great recap on, I guess, the terrorism landscape right now and our counter-terrorist efforts, especially after the tumultuous year we had in 2021. Yeah, thanks, uh, Andre. Thanks, Ryan. Always glad to to be with you, and uh, great to see all the success you're having on the on the podcast. So that was our conversation with Javed Ali, Andre. We we really covered a, a wide spectrum of issues in the counterterrorism landscape, but one in particular that I think you and I always keep emphasizing, and one that was kind of highlighted in this episode, was the issue of domestic terrorism and how difficult it is in the United States to have meaningful legislation that criminalizes domestic terrorism just because we have these constitutional protections of speech and assembly. And so it certainly makes it much more difficult to prosecute Americans for, for terrorist acts, particularly as it relates on the domestic sides, than say for maybe Al-Qaeda terrorists or those who engage in terrorism, foreign terrorism uh, abroad. I mean, it is important to note, and Javed said this, that our tools for dealing with foreign terrorism, our capabilities, uh, for example, we use the CIA. Right to collect intelligence, to engage with some operations, and so on. We use it for foreign terrorism. We cannot use the CIA for domestic terrorism. We cannot do use foreign-facing agencies for internal issues. It's just a totally different set of standards of personnel and regulations that impact how we deal with American citizens, right? And I mean, most domestic terrorists are, in fact, American citizens. And Again, uh, Ryan, as you alluded to, uh, there aren't really rules on the book for prosecuting someone as a, quote, domestic terrorist. There are laws that talk about destruction of property. Uh, there are laws that talk about murder. Uh, and those laws have obviously been used uh, by courts and prosecutors to prosecute some domestic terrorists and or rioters, for example. But we don't really have that sort of classification nailed down. And in this politically charged climate, it's, it's a very hard thing, I think, to get through 
uh, in terms of legislation. And I think if those of you who are interested in the potential for some type of legislative solution, go back to our episode very early on. I think it was episode like five or six with Barbara McQuaid, uh, a former U.S. attorney. She served in the DOJ as well and knows the issue well. We also talked a bit about it, I believe, with Andrew McCabe, a former acting CIA, or not CIA, FBI director, um, which we talked about uh, domestic terror issues with him as well. And so I, again, this, these issues are going to keep coming up and we're going to try to have more voices and perspectives uh, on domestic terrorism, particularly from both the policy perspective, the regulatory perspective, but also kind of, you know, what it looks like from the law enforcement perspective as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a very, it's a very tough, but interesting issue to really delve into just because of all the complexities that occur when you're differentiating domestic terrorism from, you know, day-to-day crime, from, say, riots and so on. Uh, what is the goal of some of these groups, right? Like a riot that might evolve from a protest, is, is there an ulterior goal, for example, overthrowing the government, forcing some policy change? Or are they, or are they just looting stores and to get these goods? Or with the Capitol riot, right? People were trying to stop this process from actually occurring, the certification of this election. So it's, it's a very interesting issue, a very complex issue, and a very politically complicated issue as well, but certainly something we spend a lot of time on with the podcast and something we'll certainly spend a lot of time on focusing uh, in the future. And on the flip side of the coin, so we talked a lot about domestic terrorism, but for international terrorism, something that Javed said that I found interesting is that we, we can't really lose sight of the international terrorism threat because, you know, while we have pulled back from Afghanistan, while we are focusing more uh, on issues at home, there are still groups out there that are trying to harm the U.S. both in, at, at home, but also our interests abroad. And so uh, it, it's very crucial for the United States to maintain vigilance around the world. And of course, are the men and women who serve in a variety of agencies and intelligence components are doing that work as well as our military to ensure that doesn't happen. But again, we can't lose sight that the threats still exist. Absolutely. And I mean, Javed did say, quote, that uh, if you give Al-Qaeda or some of these other extremist elements a uh, room to strike, they will strike. So that's another thing to keep in mind, that the threat from foreign terrorism is ever, ever, ever present. Absolutely. All right. So we'll leave it there, Andre. We have a fantastic episode uh, coming next week. And also be sure to stay tuned for our Friday episodes of What in the World. Uh, And until next time, thank you for listening to the Burn Bag Podcast.